Hello and welcome to the Mental Health Shelf podcast. My name is Jamie Skinner and in this podcast I invite a guest to bring five items which they believe have brought them joy or calmness in their lives and one by one we discuss them and then they get put on their own mental health shelf, a likely non-existent shelf unless the guest likes the idea of it so much that they might go and assemble one after recording. I, I don't know, I don't think that's happened yet but you never know maybe one day uh we then talk about them they get put on their mental health shelf which is something to look to when the world is getting a bit much just for reminders of that joy that calmness or just some of the reasoning which we go into when discussing the items these items can be absolutely anything the guest wants cookbook plasticine yoga mat silk screen and i won't lie that's probably the most likely and normal combination i've come up with for a set of examples so far anyway this month my guest is producer karen newman i've spoken to karen a number of times over the past couple of years for various projects and with her latest feature film love without walls hitting uk cinemas and going on a tour with q a's afterwards as well i took the opportunity to invite her to the podcast to discuss of course the items on her shelf talk a little bit about love without walls and also just what it is a producer does for context love without walls is a drama about a young married couple sophie and paul played by shana swash and Niall mcnamee who also does some original songs for the film and they after struggling to pay their rent turning to friends and family with not great results they find themselves being made homeless struggling to find work struggling to get gigs he's an aspiring musician but plays to very small audiences in community centers where they'd rather be playing bingo than listening to someone who doesn't really play music that's entirely to their tastes um they then as i say find themselves homeless and it's about how things begin to go from bad to worse and yet the couple still trying to find hope and the way which in which they deal with their surroundings and the people who they meet along the way we'll hopefully dive into that and a fair bit more over the course of our conversation which i'm very much looking forward to and so no more waffle from me Let's jump into it, shall we? Here is the mental health shelf of Karen Newman. It is wonderful to welcome to this month's edition of the Mental Health Shelf podcast, the award-winning producer of multiple award-winning short and feature films, the president of the Timothy Welling Bursary, two drama students helping them in their final year, and the founder of Hidden Door Productions, Karen Newman. Welcome. Hello, lovely to be here. Nice to see you, or hear you. (laughs) How are you? I'm good, thank you. Just back from Cannes, so a little bit jaded still and a little bit of the Cannes blues. <laughs> um, well, let's jump into the kind of producing work. What to you is the role of a producer? Oh, good Lord. Um, it's everything, really. It's taking a project from the very like conception of it, from an idea, from a script, and taking it all the way through to attach people, to attach talent, get it into production, find the finance, get it into market. It's everything. It's, um, there's no, yeah, it's a multiple, a multiple tasks throughout the whole journey and you never get rid of them. They're always like, they're like children. They kind of like live with you forever. (laughs) We'll come on to a bit, uh, a bit of that in a couple of minutes, but you list yourself in one or two places as a, as a creative producer. Is there any difference between this and just a standard producer, so to say? I don't think there's anything um, such as a standard producer to be honest, but I say creative producer because I've come from a creative background, seeing where they've come from a different angle. So they bring a different skill set, which I guess is their main skill, whereas my main skill, because I used to be an actor, has come from the creative side. So I think I'm more creative than I am financial, although I do have to do both. What What was it that led you away from acting to producing? I got fed up with not working and earning money. <laughs> I'm not saying I own a great deal at the moment, but it was not having any choices or the power in, in your own career. As an actor, I always felt I was the bottom of the ladder, always disregarded. And it was the, going for auditions and all that competition and kind of self-loathing and rejection. And it just got in the end, it just got a bit too much. And I started to fall out of love with it. My agent would phone up and say, oh, you've got this casting. And I'd be like, oh, no, I've got to tell the, the day job that. I've got another dentist appointment or another grandma's died and I'm running out of grandma's and just it just became a bit a bit too much and I always liked I always liked the industry and I always wanted to stay in it and I think because of where I worked in the city and doing event coordination and management those skills kind of transpose quite easily into producing so yeah I think it's a I think it's a good fit I'm much happier where I am now. As a producer, I presume you're overseeing kind of multiple projects at various different stages all at once. How do you keep things and also yourself organised? 
Um, good question, actually. Um, I have just, I don't know whether this is a plug for this company. I've just downloaded Motion, the, the AI scheduling to app tool, which seems to be absolutely amazing. And you, I type in all my tasks and it kind of jiggles it around into projects, which is great. It's tricky because they're all at different stages, as you say, and it's trying to find the focus time to work on each of them and then prioritise what's more important. I mean, they're all important. All their stages are important. At the moment, it's Love Without Walls because we're about to release it in cinemas next week. Um, and Jane and I, Jane, the director, and I are going on tour a little bit, taking Q&A screenings around like the country. So that's quite an organisational nightmare. Um, bearing in mind, I used to be a PA and used to organise people's travel for a living. I actually looked at our itinerary and went, I've got location blindness. I don't know what to do. So there's all that going on. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult question, actually. It's sometimes really difficult to prioritise and to go through that to-do list and work out how to cope with it all. I'm not sure I answered your question, but yeah. <laughs> um, let's kind of talk a little bit about Love Without Walls because during lockdown we spoke about this film and you were trying to crowdfund it to kind of finish the edit and move it along to get it to this point where you're about to take it on tour. When you're in that state, when you know, you're know you trying to move a film forward, when it seems to be stuck, what goes through your mind in those moments? Uh, pure panic. <laughs> <laughs> we'd, we'd committed to the shoot dates, I think. So Jane and I were very, well, we're very stubborn people anyway, and we were very, well, in a good way. Um, and we just thought we're, gonna, we're doing this, whatever happens. Um, as it got closer and closer, I started thinking it's a little bit when you jump out of a plane and you hope the parachute works. It was like we've we've jumped and now we've got to pull the string and see what happens. Um, excitement, anxiety, all that kind of comes into play um, and relief that it all did come together in the end. You say there about excitement and anxiety, that kind of pairing. Is that the case for any film at any stage of production? Yes, <laughs> pretty much. Do, do you get a bit of a kick out of that at all? Um, yeah, I, I do sometimes. Um, I think it's the adrenaline. You always get kind of like an adrenaline rush and it always feels um, a bit like a sort of slightly bipolar industry. You're, you're high when you're high and then the lows are really low as well. There never seems to be any kind of in the middle. Um, we're on a red carpet or we're desperately trying to get money and it's not working. It, it never seems to be a constant. When you have to try and keep control of so much, how do you kind of keep control of yourself? Um... Oh, interesting question. Um, I suppose being able to, to literally close the office door and go into the countryside and take my dog for a walk and just switch off. And I have a lot of friends in the village I live in and generally that are not in the industry. And I don't talk to them necessarily about what I'm doing. I don't think it's very interesting for them. But at the same time, I don't want to talk about it. And it's nice to talk about what they're doing. And I suppose it's just a case of actually trying to switch off. Is it easy for you to do that, to just say, I need to take a break or I need to just go and take the dog for a walk? No, I feel terribly guilty taking a break. And I think being self-employed, um, generally, that's a thing across the board. We always tend to feel guilty for being sick or taking a holiday or, you know, deciding that we want to spend 20 minutes at the coffee machine. You know, it, it, it is. Yeah, it's a total guilt because there's nobody here to kind of talk to about it or to share the responsibility. So you feel you feel quite responsible for absolutely everything. How do you kind of make sure that you surround yourself with the right, even if you're self-employed a lot of the time, maybe you're spending time with yourself. How do you make sure you're surrounding yourself with the right people? I suppose from a work capacity, I have now decided, well, it's not a sudden thing, that I will only work with people I like um, because it's such a, it, it feels like a marriage. When you make a film, you kind of get, you can't get married to these people. So if I don't like them, it's 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 dreadful. It's a horrible experience. And I've been there with, with unfortunately people we didn't get on so to, to have people that you gel with and if I get if I get a gut feeling about something or a project or anybody then it then I have to veto it however good it sounds so that helps um and then yeah I just just make sure my you know I, I do speak to my friends I do keep in touch with I mean it's hard when things are kind of snowballing but just to actually go to the pub on a Friday night and talk to a whole load of people that have no idea what you do um, and all they see is that, oh, it's in the cinemas. Congratulations. They don't see all the kind of stuff that's coming through and to celebrate the good things, really. I think that's really important always to celebrate. Even the small wins are good to celebrate. When you're dealing with the stress and all the chaos of uh, a film that's maybe filming at the moment or in its editing process, how do you keep those healthy relationships? How do you keep motivation? 
Well, it's my job to, I suppose. And so sometimes it's, you know, fake it till you feel it. Um, but if I if I'm the one that goes down into the you know depths of despair, then I drag the entire team down with me. So I have to keep up, even when things are going horribly wrong. I have to be the positive. It's going to be okay. We can solve this person because otherwise, who else is going to do that? <laughs> is that easy for you to do? Um, I think calling on acting background, it's probably easier because I can put on a bit of a facade and and just soldier through. And then it will be the case of coming home and bawling my eyes out in in a dark room and and all that sort of stuff to kind of get it out and then going back again. No, it's hard. It's hard to put on that brave front. I mean, it's not always like that. Sometimes Mm. things do genuinely go well and you are celebrating everything. Do you talk to people about the way that you're feeling about some things? Is there a point when, yes, you may be putting on, as you said, a facade of, you know, a very upbeat, very positive, things going well. When you aren't quite feeling that and you do need to go home and bore your eyes out, do you have people in those moments or even on set that you can talk to about those points? Yeah, I always do. I always make sure that there are some members of my team that I've worked with a long time. Um, and I've got I've got those people who I can call at any point. Um, really, you know, really high classes like best friends and Jane and I have gotten brilliantly throughout the whole production. So we've shared a lot of that burden on set. We had to go our separate ways, which was quite sad. She had to do the directing. I had to do the producing. But up until that point, we were quite we were in everything we did together. And that was good. That was nice to have that kind of camaraderie because we went through all those emotions together. And I was able to pick her up and she was able to pick me up and all that sort of stuff. As you're both about to embark on this tour for uh, Love About Walls, going across the country, different Q&As, different screenings, different places, and you've had a couple of festival screenings, you've won some awards. Do you still have anything in your mind such as worry, or now you've got these awards and these good reviews, do you start to ease into it? Um. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but now I'm thinking I need international sales, I need it to make money, I need to pay back investors, I want to win a BAFTA, I want Jane to win a BAFTA, I want everybody to, to be talking about the film, I want the momentum to get us onto the next project. Um, All the time, always self-doubt, self-worry, all, all of it, yeah. You're constantly switched on, aren't you? You're kind of always <laughs> thinking about yeah. this. Yes, basically, yeah. Let's move on to your uh, mental health shelf, the thing that even, you know, in those moments when you're sat at your desk trying to worry about going on a tour with the film, something that you can look to uh, for a bit of escape or joy. Is there anything that kind of relates to filmmaking on your shelf? Um, I have, um, uh, I have, a, <laughs> I have a, a model of Wonder Woman. Okay. Uh, which my best friend bought me. And actually, I've got a few Wonder Woman things around the office. And he bought it for me to represent what what he thinks I am and what I can be and what I need to be. And it is a reminder that, um, yes, I can. And yes, it can be. I mean, her whole pose and the way she stands is so positive and strength and, and power. And so, yeah, it's I she's up there and she's up there. So I've got a constant reminder of, yes, I can do it. Does it help to kind of see yourself in these kind of figures? I think so. I went to a, I went to a conference once and actually the guy doing the conference made everybody stand up in Wonder Woman pose and just take a breath and say, you know, take the power from it. And actually it's quite a, it's quite a powerful position to stand in and you actually think, right, okay, yes, I can do this. Is it uh, something that's just kind of in your office or is it something that's um, you know, you're surrounded by in a number of places? Um, yeah, I've got I've got uh, I ran the marathon on in November and I I ran it with a Wonder Woman um sticker thing on my back I've got little badges of it I, it's on my my work bag I've got like a Wonder Woman symbol um it's kind of everywhere really it's just like a, a constant a constant reminder Wonder Woman's kind of one of those almost timeless characters there have been various iterations of her over the years in well as I say various forms and various people playing her has it been a character that you've kind of always admired or has it been a more recent thing I think it's been a more recent thing, actually, the last sort of few years. Obviously, I watched the early Wonder Woman's and I think the new, I haven't seen the new the new version of her. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's always constantly in my mind. And I think women are always compared to to something, aren't they? Some kind of character or some kind of person. Um, but it was literally, I think, about I think it was just before Covid. And I was kind of going, oh, God, what am I going to do? And my friends started sending me little kind of Wonder Woman um, memes and gifts and stuff. And it just kind of snowballed from there. 
have you kind of uh, uh, from your friend and even if another uh, a number of other people have you kind of got this label of wonder woman yourself now um i I would never say i'm wonder woman um it's kind of like a joke really i think it sounds a bit egocentric to say i'm wonder woman although sometimes i feel i have to be because of all the tasks and all the juggling that i kind of have to do um and all, all the stuff that you kind of take on and embrace on behalf of your entire team does feel a bit wonder woman esque <laughs> um let's move on to number uh, item number two shall we what's uh what's that well it's not really an item it's a it's a creature it's my dog Maisie um my black labrador who I've had for eight years now she's eight had her since she was a puppy first dog um I've ever had so that was quite special um we went through some turbulent times together because having never had a dog before I wasn't exactly the greatest dog mum to begin with um so there were some teething issues in our relationship um but we worked through so she's a constant reminder of how you could work through stuff put the effort in and then you get the results that you wanted I wanted a dog best friend you can't have a dog best friend puppy you have to train them properly and then you get your dog best friend and now she is my dog best friend and you of course you've got that relationship as you say dog best friend does it um does uh, she also kind of act as a symbol of you know i have done this i have made this progress i'm able to do things yeah when when i first got her i literally was left alone um my, my husband disappeared to work and i was left alone with a three-month puppy going how do i keep this thing alive like what i, I don't have children so I'm, i can only imagine it's a similar thing when you have a baby maybe sort of um just going i don't i don't know what to do with i don't know what to do with this animal um so yeah i i learned and because i was terrified of taking her out i was terrified of letting her off the lead say she didn't come back say i lost her say something happened um so yeah it, it is it is an achievement to see her at eight years old you know i mean she's down here um sleeping away and and being happy in the, the previous episode, um, someone asked for a cat on their shelf and, and we talked a bit about kind of, you know, talking to an animal, stress relief, voicing your concerns. If you can't do it to a person, well, you can do it to your dog or your cat. Do you find yourself doing that? Yeah, but she's not very good as uh, as a producer's assistant, though. She's not very <laughs> good uh, in that kind of respect. And sometimes she will get fed up with me and literally leave the room. She's very sensitive to my emotions. So if I'm getting upset, I get two looks. I get the first look of stop it. And then the second look is if you carry on, I'm leaving the room and then she will get up and leave. And actually, bizarrely, that does calm me down because I'm like, I've upset the dog. <laughs> <laughs> you were speaking um, before we kind of got onto your items about, you know, taking a break, taking the dog for a walk. Does that give you a reason to find that escape, to find that peace and quiet in the countryside? Definitely. She I mean, she even this morning when I was just lying in bed thinking, oh, God, you know, another day. She's literally there going, get up. I want to go for a walk. <laughs> So you you do, you get up and you're, you're responsible for her. So yes, we went out and then I cheered up because it was a beautiful morning and the countryside was lovely and she was playing in the long grass like a silly idiot. Um, so yeah, no, it makes, it makes me smile. Do those moments kind of give you opportunity to kind of just dwell in that moment and, and observe what's around you instead of kind of worrying about all the stuff you've got to do for work? I try not to look at my mobile when I'm walking the dog, although unfortunately sometimes that doesn't actually go according to plan. And I am looking, I'm Googling things and I'm trying to work through things as I'm walking. But I try I try to kind of just talk myself through what's happening, if there's anything going wrong or anything. I try not to keep, I try not to look at, com, you know, communication from people because that can be constant. So, yeah, no, it, it does help. I, I presume the surrounding as well helps. Yes, I live in Hertfordshire. I live in the countryside. So, yeah, I, I walk, literally walk out my front door into fields. It, is it um, easy for you to kind of find it, just places of quiet and peace or, or is it largely escaping into that countryside? Yeah, it is. I mean, luckily, I don't have to go very far. I mean, we've got, I've got quite a nice garden and a swing chair at the end of it, um, which is near the woods. So that's kind of quiet and peaceful. And I do and where we live. I do like I do like to hear you know the birds singing in the morning and all that sort of stuff. How does it contrast um, kind of to your mind when you go to a city? Is there any difference? Um, I, I like cities. I mean, I used to live in London and there's part of me that kind of misses that community and that kind of buzz. Um, so I think it's kind of important to have both. I think if I just stayed in the countryside, I'd be a bit stir crazy. So I do go into London, not not every week, but I, I am in London for meetings and various events. And I think that helps. And obviously Man we went to Manchester, which we won, the Manchester Film Festival. Um, and that was a lovely city. It was a nice city break. And then I felt like now I have to leave and go back to the countryside. 
it, it is good to kind of have that variety in your life to kind of you know not ease your mind into one thing or I guess get used to it so to say I don't know I get I get bored easily mm. I think I mean that's one of the benefits of having numerous projects on the go is that I can switch if I get bored with doing something I can switch to another one and so I would get bored just being in the countryside the whole time just as I would get fed up and irritated being in the city all the time so I think it's a, it's nice to have access to both is that one of the good things about kind of filmmaking then you've always got a new challenge or something new to focus on yeah every film I mean you you start from literally start from the beginning with every film every film is different so you make one successful film you think great I've got a formula you go and make another and the formula doesn't fit and you have to find a new formula so that that stops you getting kind of complacent and, and bored really um and how do you kind of start to approach these challenges i guess what with film mm. so, sometimes not very well um sometimes i'm like oh god i can't i can't i can't do this um but generally it's just i write lists i i you know i try and plan plot through things not a lot of it's a gut feeling if i read a script that i have a gut feeling and i can kind of see the trajectory of what's going to happen to it and how I'm going to get it out there and how it will look. Um, that's always a good start. And it's a, ch- it's a challenge, but then I'm plotting, I'm plotting the future. I'm plotting the marketing of it before I've even finished reading the script kind of thing. I realise all of this kind of is a number of tangents away from us talking about your dog to kind of take things <laughs> back to, um, to back to that. When, as a presence, when even if like now you're sat here, your dog's next to you, is that just a, a, a source of comfort in a way? Just having the dog next to you? Yeah, I mean, there'll be an occasion, probably in about five minutes, when she'll get bored and come <laughs> and nudge me and, and want attention and won't understand that I'm actually on a call and can't actually play with her or or do anything. Yeah, but it's nice knowing that she. I mean, we don't necessarily have to be in the same room, but knowing that there's something else in the house is 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 cool. Mm. Uh, let's move on to uh, item number three, shall we? Gosh, um, which one to pick? Okay, so when I went to Cannes in 2019, um, my first feature, Just Charlie, won the Cannes Ekran Junior competition. And it was a bit of a turbulent time because it, it, it difficult, um, difficult film process, let's put it that way, without saying too much. And I was on my own and um, it was the last week of Cannes and we'd won and I didn't, you know, I was kind of wandering the, like the old streets bit fed up because I had nobody to celebrate with and I walked into this really small jewellery shop and there was this um, necklace with a with a bull's head gold bull's head and I was just really drawn to it and I bought it as a reminder to myself to to be strong but also to not take any bull <laughs> I, won't, I won't say the rest of that word in case I don't know who you what your viewers are um, and I wear it when I, I need to feel powerful or I need to I need a reminder that actually don't take any crap and it kind of feels like it links into that Wonder Woman thing, just a, a small little item, a small thing that can that remind you and, and be empowering. Is this something that you kind of seek out? I don't know whether I seek it out. I, I do like symbols. I do like um, things that remind me of places and people and experiences and all that sort of stuff. I mean, the office is kind of covered with little notes and little things that people have given me and stuff. Um I, I suppose I was just drawn to it. I was looking for something to represent how I was feeling at the time, but also how I wanted to feel. Um, so yeah, I suppose I'm I'm quite I'm quite into all that sort of stuff. Is it something this uh, the item that you got from Can? Is it something that you've continued to wear, or that that you continue to kind of look at on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, it hangs up in the bedroom on on the mirror, and I will often wear it. Um, to, I actually often, quite often wear it to meetings, especially when it's a meeting with somebody I don't know and I feel slightly inferior to, then, I'll, then I will wear it. Do, do you call back to the reason um, of why you got it? Does it serve as a kind of constant reminder? Is it something that you think about regularly? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because of the feelings attached when I when I purchased it. Mm. it is it almost like the, the dog in a way, a, a reminder of personal development? I think it's a reminder of how I want to be and how I want to feel rather than personal development I suppose it's kind of the same thing but it's it's more about how I want to project yeah what is it that you do want to be then (laughs) um positive strong um a good influence on people you know successful I think how you measure success is an interesting question for probably another time I don't want to take any kind of 
crap from anybody I think in in this industry especially as a, as a woman actually you do get like stampled on a, quite a lot by the very stereotypical um white middle class male kind of you know that, that kind of aggression if you like um so yeah to, to and to not to not get so personally affected by things and take things so personally just it's business it's work it just to kind of brush it off I mean we're making films we're not doing brain surgery do you feel that you managed to encapsulate a lot of that within yourself no of course not <laughs> is, is, is it a kind of work in progress it's a work in progress it's always it's always a work in progress yeah do you feel you're developing towards it though I think so. I think in Cannes this year, I definitely had a lot more confidence talking to people and not feeling so overwhelmed walking into a big sales company's office. I, you know, I felt I deserved to be there. I should be there. Whereas in previous years, it was always a case of, oh gosh, thank you, thank you. I would, I shouldn't be here. But now I'm like, yeah, I should be here. Of course, why, why wouldn't I be here? Is it was it a little bit of kind of imposter syndrome? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I think everybody has it to a certain degree. It depends how it affects you and what you do to kind of overcome it. I think we're all walking around with imposter syndrome. To kind of go into um, almost two different aspects of, um, the, I guess, festival life. I, you know, I, I've only ever been to one or two as press. I, I, I've not been in your capacity of the people who actually have the talent and are unable to put the stuff together. <laughs> when you're in a meeting, for example, I, maybe it's a, a producer's meeting, maybe you're trying to get some funding or something. You mentioned feeling inferior and inferiority. How do you combat that? Um... <laughs> I think now I, I rely on on my acting and also sometimes I have to ask myself why am I feeling inferior what is it about this person this situation that's making me feel like that and sometimes it's um because I don't feel like I can be myself and I think a lot of potential partnerships and potential collaborations I've pulled away from because I've realized that I'm I don't feel myself when I'm with somebody and if I don't feel myself, I don't feel comfortable and that makes me feel inferior. So I kind of try and analyse what it is that's making me feel like that and concentrate on that rather than actually feeling it, if you see what I mean. Is it easy to kind of rationalise that in your mind? I, I I think from a moral perspective, I don't think this is overly comparable, but still, if I'm you know feeling anxious or nervous or I'm trying to understand something emotionally i may just put that down to you know being autistic and that that will be the explanation that i'll go okay look i'm not going to you know feel such and such thing or i may be confused by this that'll be that and that's a kind of comforting ish reason it, it, it's a reason it's enough for you is it easy to kind of rationalize things and put that into words in your own mind it, it, particularly in the moment I'm getting better at it. It's normally after the moment that mm. I sit and go, right, why did I feel like that? Why did I, you know, act like that or say or not feel comfortable saying the things that I had listed that I was going to say? And what was it about that dynamic? It's always kind of you analyze, I analyze it after the mm. fact. So I suppose the trick is to learn to analyze it whilst in the moment and then deal with it. But I'm not quite there yet. It's always afterwards. Mm. I'd like a time machine, I think. I'd like one of those things that you, you kind of go back and having really thought about the situation, go back and do it differently. And they go, yeah, that would be excellent. <laughs> Compare that then, like a meeting scenario, to a more social nature. Even if you're still discussing work, how do you kind of combat those feelings in that? Is it the same kind of thing, analysing it afterwards? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, in a social setting, it's a, I suppose it's a little bit easier because you I guess you've kind of chosen to be in that situation more than you would a work meeting. But again, you know, networking events, you go along with friends, you meet new people and you still have that kind of weird reaction that people make you feel odd. Um, I, I met this woman in Cannes, actually. She's a big um, past life um, guru. I don't quite know what to, how to explain it. And she was telling me that everybody's had a past life and once you tap into it, she, she basically sells this course that you can... <laughs> whatever but she the whole kind of thing was that you know once you work out your reason for being here you feel at peace and I suppose it was quite it, it is kind of that thing of what is my reason for being here it you know and, and coming to terms with that and then just thinking well okay that meeting didn't work that social engagement they don't like me it's fine I don't like them and kind of just accepting that that was a load of waffle sorry no no there's nothing wrong with waffle as I continue to say <laughs> When you're in those kind of situations and you're telling yourself, okay, why am I here? 
does it become easier when you go in subsequent years to subsequent events does it then become easier over time yeah i think so it's it's kind of riding a bike sort of scenario isn't it you the more you do it the better you get and then you kind of never really forget um although you may ride the bike badly you don't forget necessarily how to do it do you have a kind of a, a process in a way just one thing to kind of in those more social areas kick things off because i my my one is literally just stand there and again probably not comparable in any way mine is and i've waffled on about this before if i'm literally just stood in a press queue at a festival you just turn to someone who might be next to you or near you just ask you know have you seen anything decent so far and even if someone sat next to you conversation ensues or you know and and it's odd because it took me the first a couple of years just to then go in the first couple of days people probably haven't seen anything are you looking <laughs> forward to anything <laughs> and it's odd that it took me a couple of years just to go i can still talk to people in the first couple of days <laughs> do you kind of have that is there a kind of process that you've had or you know a gradual development to kick things off um, I think we're really fortunate we all have mobile phones now because one of the distractions is that you can pretend you're looking for a call or something. <laughs> <laughs> I Yeah, I find those situations really difficult. So um, I will tend to comment on something that we're both looking at or point out um, if we're, we're in a queue, it's like, God, why is this queue so long? Make some kind of, you know, weird. Yeah. I've, been in, I've been in toilet queues, especially in Cannes, and you just end up... I end up making a comment about God. I don't understand what women do in the toilet, and then suddenly you're you're talking to people, or you're at a, you're at the bar and somebody's pouring a interesting looking drink, and you sort of say to the person next to you, "Have you, have you tried that?" It doesn't always work because mm. people just look at you and kind of gravitate away. But sometimes it's enough to spark a conversation. Or the other thing I do is I look I look for that lone person standing in the corner, and I will tend to come up and go, "Hey, you know," um, and see if they actually want somebody to talk to or in fact they are just standing there literally looking for a phone call <laughs> uh, uh, would you say you're a generally sociable person then um i can be in the right circumstances i think a lot of networking events i find it quite difficult because i'm constantly judging um who these people are what is my status to them there's all that going on so yeah i can be i can be the life and soul of the party but then i can also be the person in the corner of the room pretending to look at their phone Let's move on to item number four, shall we? So my daughter, who's now into crystals for my birthday, bought me an amethyst crystal tree, which initially when I pulled it out of its box, I was like, right, what am I going to do with that? Um, but amethyst is my birthstone. So I think, bless her, I think that's why she bought it. And it, it's a peaceful, it's purple as well. It's my favourite colour. Um, and it sits on my shelf and it's just it's just nice to look at. I find it quite calming because I think trees are generally quite beautiful and calming and there's so much intelligence about them and history. So I have a I have an amethyst tree um, in the corner of the office. This is coming from someone who has no clue about any of the kind of crystals or birthstones or anything like that. Is it something that you've looked into a little bit since? Not really, because I find all that a bit odd, to be fair. But it's um, it's because my goddaughter's so obsessed with them. I mean, she she has crystals. She tells me what all of them mean and how they calm her. I mean, she's got um you know autism and she's got a lot of mm. mental health issues so she looks for something all the time to kind of give her peace and comfort and she's got a bag of crystals she can tell me what anyone means and she'll go into a crystal shop and she'll be like oh yeah that means that and that's that i'm like wow so no i think i think life's too busy at the moment to kind of investigate every crystal in the world but <laughs> I, do, I do like i do like looking at amethyst i do like i think that it's a nice it's a nice color it's a beautiful crystal so mm. it is so it's kind of aesthetic thing yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, is that something that you kind of try to surround yourself then? They're just kind of calming objects. Yeah, no, I do. I have, I have lots of. I mean, I've got plants and I've got flowers mm. and I do. Yeah, I mean, my husband would say that the office is cluttered, but I think it's organised <laughs> clutter with things that I like. I know where everything is, so that's mm. all good. It, it, you said about how it kind of reminds you of trees and kind of you know that area of peacefulness. Again, it kind of comes back to that idea of nature in the countryside. I guess it does really. I've always loved the countryside. I've always loved woods and fields and being outside. Um, that kind of, I suppose it's like take a breath, isn't it? They say. I mean, people go and hug trees. I'm not don't. I don't I'm not doing that. But it's. I find them very fascinating and kind of the history. And if they could talk, what, what would they say? That kind of thing. Do you also think that the kind of personal connection it's come from your goddaughter does that help as well? 
yeah no it does it's like our little thing so mm-hmm. she she chose it she bought it for me and I took pictures of where I was putting it and she was saying well don't put it there you need to go in your window and I was like okay fine it'll go where it goes Isabella but it's fine um so no yeah it's that it's, it's nice because she chose it for me so I I like yeah I think that's special mm. a number of these kind of items particularly also going back to the uh, Wonder Woman element they they have those personal connections I mean obviously it would be something that you value does it help to push you on as well knowing that you know things have come from people personally like that it makes me feel yeah it makes me feel loved I guess in that I think we're all looking to be loved aren't we it's kind of a therapy session here but yeah no she she chose it she she wanted me to have something that she was interested in that we could share and that does make me feel special and, and close to her and honored that she did that so it, it makes me smart looking at the tree because I think of her and I think of that relationship when you kind of also look at it, you say it's a, an element of kind of calmness in that moment, particularly in um, your office. So that you, you said, you know, where everything is, even if it might be a little bit cluttered. Is it something that you find yourself looking to often? Um, well, I can't not look at it when I walk out of the office because it's literally on the shelf by the uh-huh. door. So it's positioned. So I see it when I come in and I see it when I leave. So I think seeing it the first time first thing in the morning is great and then obviously when I shut the office door at night it's the last thing I see is it kind of a natural thing is it is it slightly intentionally put there then so that you kind of start and end your working day with it I don't know whether I intentionally did that I think I I think she was dictating where I put it and where (laughs) I wasn't allowed to put it and it kind of ended up there as a compromise (laughs) does it help though that you kind of start and end your day with it yeah, I think so. It, it's, you know, it's it's a very small thing, isn't it? But it kind of makes you think, oh, you know, someone cares. <laughs> is is that something you almost need a reminder of, particularly when you're stressed or if you have dealt with a negative productional day? Yeah, I think I find it quite difficult to talk. I mean, I'm, I'm a very emotional person, but I find it difficult to talk sometimes about how I'm feeling. Mm. I will kind of... Um, I don't know, it kind of ruminates inside rather than venting it out. So I can't remember what your question was. <laughs> well, well, let's kind of focus on that element, actually. How do you express the way that you feel? Do you talk about it? It depends what it is, actually. I mean, I'm not very good at confrontation. And by that, I mean, kind of, I suppose it's kind of a case of saying, no, I'm not happy with that. And why? Mm. I, I'm... <laughs> Somebody once told me I was a people pleaser. I don't I don't like that term, but there is an element of me that doesn't want to upset anybody, wants to, you know, be on someone's good side yeah. and make, make somebody feel happy. But you can't do that all the time. And actually, to be true to yourself, you can't be a people pleaser. So I think sometimes saying no, learning to say no and actually tell somebody or some, you know, a situation that you're not happy and say why I do kind of find that still quite difficult because somebody will come back and go, yeah, well, I did this and that. Why, why are you acting like that? And then I'll go, oh, oh, I, 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 uh, and you kind of fumble. And I'll, I'll always think of, so I tend to write things down if I've got a difficult conversation to have. So the points are there that I can keep coming back to. When it comes to kind of feeling, I guess, more upset about something or, or overwhelmed, is it easy to vocalise that? Um, sometimes. Um, but other times I kind of analyse why I'm feeling something and think, oh, actually that's not appropriate or I'm feeling angry about something and actually that's it's something else going on in my life or there's something I'm focusing I focus everything on a particular problem actually it's got nothing to do with those people at all or that situation Hmm. so I suppose it's just a bit bit of self-awareness really does the analysis kind of act as as a release instead of bottling everything up does it allow you kind of just open up the cap and let some of it out by analyzing it I'm a great therapist in my own head I would analyze (laughs) every situation to death and come up with reasons why I feel this way or why this has happened or you know I'm but putting that into words is quite difficult I've always been I've always felt emotions intensely but sometimes feel stunted to express them I think is what I'm saying have you kind of got more of a hold of that in recent years comes with age Jamie it comes with age (laughs) Because, I, you know, part of me is, and again, it comes down to that autistic thing, it's trying to comprehend why I'm feeling something or what it is and putting into words and, you know, also trying to find those releases. Would you, would you say you're generally in touch with your emotions and you're able to understand them pretty easily? Yeah, I am. I under, I do. I kind of, because I analyse everything to death, I do, I 
I get why I feel stuff. So it doesn't stop the feeling, but it does help you work out why that's why you're feeling that way because there's nothing worse than feeling something and going I have no idea why I feel like this what's going on I, I always try and go right okay why what is the reason I'm feeling like this what what triggers what stuff's happened in the past what what makes me feel this way does it come down to that element of lists that you mentioned a while ago yeah no I do I do write lists um, I'm a big to-do list person and I listen I sometimes write things on the list like make coffee just so I can tick something off that kind of feeling of accomplishment mm. um, yeah I do I, I write things down a lot I'm a big um, kind of pen and paper person but recently I've now gone electric and I've gone digital so I'm now using a digital notebook because you know we've got to save the trees but I do I do like to write things down I find it much easier to communicate writing than I do speaking does it help that it's just because you've got something in there in front of you and it, it's more, I guess, a, an established fact if it's there and written down instead of just in your mind? Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it, actually. Once you've written something down, it's there. It, it's there in, you know, in ink. So, yeah, it's tangible as opposed to just stuff whirring around your head. <laughs> Let's move on to uh, the final item on your shelf, shall we? It's not actually on my shelf. It's in a garage down the road. <laughs> It's Patrick the 2CV, um, which does feature In Love Without Walls, um, took a starring part. And I've had that car for, oh God, I'm going to give away my age now. I've had him since I was 17, so quite a few years, um, nearly 30 years. So yeah, and and we went through some, we've been through some tough times together. I nearly lost him, couldn't afford him. At one point he was in my dad's driveway with a trip with like plants growing through him because I couldn't afford to get him fixed. We've gone through lots of failed MOTs and quite recently we're going through lots of positive MOTs. Um, and he's just, people say to me, oh, why get rid of that old car? I'm like, no, that that's me. That's that's my soul is that car, that unique, quirky, different, um, no one's got one, you know, that kind of thing. That that kind of, it's a personification of who I am is, a, is that 2CV. So he is in a, he, Patrick, is in a garage down the road. You've named it and also referred to it as he. I think that's testament enough to your connection to this car. <laughs> I, I, the garage now who um, look after him, I've started referring it to him when I ring up and I say it's the 2CV. Oh, yeah, bring him over. So, uh, yeah, they've, they've learned now to refer to him as a him. <laughs> you say that you got it at 17, kind of a, you know, a formative age, as soon as you can pretty much drive and get a car. Is it also, you know, a point of going out into the world that bigger sense of freedom yeah I think I think the two CV was I always when I was little apparently my dad used to say I used to see them and I used to point them out and giggle so I've always had this kind of obsession I love I love old cars it's the thing my dad and I got in common is we love like you know the old car um so I always liked the shape and I was wanted one and I was just obsessed so I got the opportunity to buy one for the grand total of £750 and I saved and I saved and I got it all together and it was that achievement of buying it myself and then it was the insurance getting it insured and I drove it across the country. I mean, now the thought of driving it those distances fills me with fear because it's not exactly what I'd call the safest car on the road um, and it's a car you drive to drive rather than to get somewhere now. Um, and obviously I have another car and he lives in the garage but yeah, no, it, it's that first branch out that first kind of moment of freedom of of you know being grown up and being responsible for something having to pay for something yourself and that kind of achievement is that part of the reason you kept it alongside as you mentioned the personality of it i can't get rid of him it, it, you know he's got a name he's got a personality he's been in films he's a film star you know he can't no i can't i mean i remember he used to be in the garage when we had a garage here and my husband's family used to visit and go oh what's that and I used to get so upset it was like it's my car yeah but but really and they used to make fun of it and it used to really upset me because it was like they were making fun of me because he is he's my he's my car baby he's my you know it's it's I know it's, it sounds absolutely stupid and I think the only person that really understands it probably is my dad <laughs> um but yeah I'm very I'm very attached to it and I'm I will never never sell him I think you mentioned something about the way that it looks. Uh, its style says something about you. What What is that? Um, fun, different. Um, it like I would drive him, and people would either smile and point and laugh or swear. You know, it, it was a kind of it was an individuality thing. It was a personality. It was a, it was a sign of 
I'm different and I don't care kind of thing. And I think that's kind of what I have to remind myself that I may have lost from being a teenager is that that feeling of I am who I am. And I think Patrick is who he is. He's, you know, he goes from naught to 60 in as many minutes, um, more so. <laughs> than, do you know what I mean? There's no air conditioning. You, you basically open a flap, the windows you push out. Um, sometimes he doesn't start and for absolutely no reason. So it... <laughs> It's all that kind of, I know, quirkiness I, I just adore. And the fact that I'm the only one that can actually drive him because of the gear stick. So I feel a great sense of accomplishment that my husband, who can drive everything and is, you know, one of those people that can do everything, cannot drive my car. As, as you've kind of aged with Patrick, do you still get that kind of throwback to when you first got him? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's had he's had new leather seats. He's had new steering wheel. He's probably had quite a new... I mean, it's actually... He's got the original chassis, which is quite unusual. Um, so yeah, no, he's a he's a real throwback to, yeah, all those years ago. What was it like providing him for Love Without Walls? Were you a bit nervous about that? Uh, yeah, I was. <laughs> well, to start with, the, the day before we were going to shoot, he wouldn't start. He just literally was just. I was like, "What am I going to do?" And so I think ended up calling my dad, and my dad came down with special starting spray or something and got him going. So there was all that constant worry of he's not going to start. Then there was the constant worry of he's in London, something's going to happen to him, and that kind of protectiveness about him. And then actually Shana, who plays um, Sophie, there's a scene where she she has to drive, it's their car. And she said she hadn't passed her driving test at that point, although she has now. So we kind of we did some kind of like clever filming cheating. And she did say to me, if I'd passed my driving test, would you have let me drive him? And I went, no, without even <laughs> thinking about it. I was like, no one drives that car but me. And it, that was, yeah. So I was quite, I was very protective. And even when the crew wanted to get in him and put like paperwork up on him and do all sorts of crazy things, I was standing there literally like this kind of mother going, be careful, don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> I, I kind of spoke about this with um, a previous guest, kind of things that can encapsulate certain points of development and uh, formative moments and stuff that you then carry with you as almost, not quite in this case, closing of chapters, but just, well, as I said, points of development across your entire shelf, but also as, with Patrick in mind. Is that the case? Do you kind of have these things to signify, the, you know, change in development? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Patrick is that ultimate symbol of of how I am now and how I was when I was a teenager and trying to hold on to that uniqueness and that passion. And that he's cheeky. He's a cheeky car. He gets a smile um, more so now than the swearing. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a, there's respect for him now because there's less of them around and they're getting they're getting rarer. So there's a bit more. I mean, I, I literally will park him on the driveway here to you know and people will come up and start talking and go, oh my god I used to have one of those and it's I took him to the car wash and I was surrounded by old men going oh my god I used to have one of these and it's like okay back off guys back off <laughs> does it does it bring you a bit of a smile though when you see that response then yeah absolutely I mean I used to be like that I used to, when I was younger I used to be like oh my god look at that car so yeah no it's nice and it's it's kind of you know, it makes you feel people are being also reminded of their past and their, their good things in their past. Because everybody's got a good story about their 2CV, whether it ended up blowing up on the motorway or not. It's, they, it's always a funny story or a family thing or they used to take it across. Because they, they go across fields, you know, they're, they're, they're built so that they don't tip. So you can go around a corner at great speed for a 2CV because it shifts on its chassis. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, it, they're just fun. And I think it's a good reminder of fun times. Is that something then that you feel kind of each time and also that you kind of hold close as well as that uniqueness? Yeah, he makes me... I don't take him out very often. I don't take him out as often as I should do, um, as the garage are always telling me. Um, but when I do drive him, he does make me smile. And it's normally in the summer because he's not a car for the rain or any extreme temperatures, in fact. So it has to be a nice day and no, nothing on the roads that his little tyres can slip on. So, yeah, it has to be specific conditions that we venture out. But he is good fun to drive. Is it? Does it allow you to kind of cherish that almost rare treat a bit more? Yeah, I talk to him as well. I, I have a. <laughs> sounds like I'm. Oh, I hope this isn't going out. I'm. I'm complete nutter. I talk to my car. No, but I have. I have conversations with him, um, <laughs> which which cheer me up and make me smile. If it, I mean, you know, if it's your escape, like you know, talking to your dog or something like that, you know, talk to your car. Why not? <laughs> well, exactly. He doesn't answer back, so yeah. Be worrying if I said that he did answer back though. <laughs> I think that I think that'd be straight. I mean, I think you could put it in another film if it did talk back. But yeah, still. Yeah. 
Oh, there's one in the making, yeah. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing your adaptation of Knight Rider. Uh, <laughs> before we go, uh, let's quickly run through the items on your shelf one more time. Uh, yeah. What are they? Um, gosh, this is where my... So I've got Wonder Woman um, everywhere. Um, I have that beautiful necklace with the, the, the bull's head on it. Sounds ugly, but it's not. It's really pretty with a little stone in it. Um, two CV Patrick, uh, Maisie, and an amethyst uh, stone tree. What kind of goes through your mind when you rattle all of that off? What a odd bunch of things <laughs> I've written down for this podcast. <laughs> but but you smile, so it clearly does bring you joy. Yeah, no, they make they're the things that make me smile. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Karen, thank you so much for joining me. Very much appreciated. Very welcome. And shall we just plug Love Without Walls once more? Yes, please. So it's out in cinemas um, on the 9th of June. Um, there's a link on our website, um, www.lovewithoutwallsfilm.com, um, where you can see all the cinemas and then more being added um, pretty much daily, actually, as, as we go. Jane and I are on tour. It's a beautiful film. Um, it will be out on home entertainment probably August, September time. Um, but yeah, please go and watch it. It's a beautiful film, um, beautiful direction, wonderful story, beautiful music. And yeah, one of those films that people need to see. And it has Chaz and Dave. <laughs> it does. It has a bit of everything, a bit of something for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Karen, thank you for your time. Thank you. And there we have it, the mental health shelf of Karen Newman. I know I said at the end of the last episode, kind of some of the things that I'm enjoying hearing crop up within the conversations and delving into, and something that I don't think I mentioned then, and that I thought about kind of while editing this particular podcast, is the stuff that people have in common, all the similarities they have, but the variations, the different spins that people have on certain points and perspectives or rituals, all that kind of stuff, the, the differences and the commonalities, effectively. It's interesting to hear those, and in fact, that's kind of one of the reasons why I started this podcast in the first place. Anyway, wonderful to talk to Karen as part of this podcast, even if I didn't actually get to see her dog in the end. I was really hoping I would. She mentioned, oh, the dog might get a bit restless or start to walk around and want some fuss. I must admit, there was part of me hoping that would happen. It, it didn't in the end, which is slightly disappointing, but still. Uh, if you want to see the dog, it may very well be on her social platforms. I'll tag her Instagram and Twitter in the podcast description, wherever that may be, wherever you're listening. I really should know how this kind of thing works or where that stuff is, but I don't entirely, so there's that. Anyway, as I say, I'll tag her profiles in the podcast description, alongside information on Love Without Walls, which I watched a couple of weeks ago, and I must say, I did rather enjoy. I rather liked it. Uh, well, worth checking out and uh, as we mentioned in the conversation that is screening across the uk from the 9th of june there are various dates in various different cinemas across the country more to be added www.lovewithoutwallsfilm.com is the place to go for that more information all the places it's showing all that kind of stuff as i say i rather enjoyed the film and it should be interesting with a Q&A afterwards. As I said, I've spoken about this film once or twice, once as it was going into the editing process, and of course now. And uh, with Karen and writer-director Jane Gold, who I've also spoken to for this film. I'll try and link that interview in the podcast description as well. Uh, but still, it should be interesting to see that film with a Q&A afterwards. Information on the website, as I mentioned. But before I start to plug anything else, before I start to waffle on even more, that's it for this particular episode of The Mental Health Shelf. Thank you once again to Karen for joining me. And I'll be back next month with, well, probably more of this useless waffle, but also a new guest, a new set of items, and another Mental Health Shelf altogether. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye for now. <laughs>